This is the Hearts and Minds podcast, conversations about investing and impact. Welcome to the Hearts and Minds podcast. I'm Maggie O'Neill, Head of Marketing and Operations. Thank you for joining us today. Hearts and Minds Investments is a unique ASX listed investment company, which has two objectives, to maximise long-term returns to shareholders while also providing vital financial support to leading Australian medical research institutes. On the Hearts and Minds podcast, we have a series of interesting and curious conversations with the brilliant minds that are part of Hearts and Minds. We are lucky enough to work with extraordinary individuals and we want to invite you to join these conversations on impact and investing. Today, I'm joined by Hearts and Minds Chief Investment Officer, Charlie Lenchester, for a chat with one of our core fund managers, TDM Growth Partners. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Maggie. I'm very pleased to be here. Yeah. Um, a little bit nervous. It's my first <laughs> ever podcast, but uh, I'm an avid listener of podcasts, so it's really great to be actively involved in one. Yeah, it's quite different sitting on the other side of the mic, isn't it? <laughs> Indeed. Well, today we're lucky enough to be joined by two members of the TDM investment team. And TDM have been heavily involved with Hearts and Minds since 2019. So it was a real joy to listen to this conversation and learn more about their unique approach to investing and why they love being part of the Hearts and Minds family. Not to mention, we get to do a deep dive on two of their HM1 portfolio holdings, Guzman and Gomez and Rocked. Before we jump in though, Charlie, do you want to intro these guests? Yes, of course. Uh, thanks, Maggie. I really love this conversation as well. Today we are joined by Ed Cowan and Fraser Christie. Now, I think most people will know Ed Cowan as the former Australian cricketer. He led an impressive career as a professional athlete for over 15 years before transitioning into the world of funds management. You can really hear his passion for not only investing, but nurturing high-performing teams and culture. Ed is also on the conference curatorial committee and has moderated a few impressive conversations on stage, including most recently a panel on investing in sport as an asset class. A truly interesting conversation that we touch on a little later in today's chat. And don't forget, Ed's also the host of one of our favourite podcasts, Scaling Up, where Ed chats to impressive operators about how they grow and scale their businesses. And so many lessons can be drawn from those conversations. We were also joined by Fraser Christie, another impressive member of the investment team. Tell us a bit more about him. Yes, and Fraser is certainly an impressive individual. He joined the TDM team back in 2019. He's passionate about supporting tech founders and management teams as they navigate their growth journey. And prior to joining TDM, Fraser spent time in the world of private equity. Yeah, an impressive manager. And you wouldn't believe that it was his first time being on a podcast today. Fraser absolutely knocked the lights out. Alrighty, let's get to the good stuff. Take it away. Welcome, Ed and Fraser, to the Hearts and Minds podcast. It's great to have you here today with us. Charlie, awesome to be here and to speak on behalf of Fraser and myself and everyone at TDM. We're, as you know, pretty selective on on where and how we show up in the public eye. But one thing I do know is we're really proud of our commitment and energy to Hearts and Minds and the Sone Conference, and, and we take our job as core managers very seriously. And that's not just on the investing side, of course, that's on the the charitable side of the fence as well. You know, we're very purposeful in in the impact that we can hopefully make. So excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely, Ed. And look, thanks for being such a big part of it, not just through TDM, but you know, being on the, the committee as well. And you're giving your time away for free. So we really appreciate it. So maybe let's start with getting a, a better understanding of TDM Growth Partners. 
it's not your typical fund manager by any means. No. <laughs> and you've uh, put your yeah. very unique stamp on the business of funds management, actually, and how you manage other people's money. And as I understand it at TDM, you're all generalists to some extent. Um, you stray away from traditional job titles. There's no VP or director or analyst uh, and all that sort of stuff, which people get very obsessed about. You're both part of the investment team. So maybe let's start by understanding a, a bit more about your roles within it. Ed, do you want to go first and give us some background on the team structure? Yeah, I can. And, and Fraser, who's here with me, uh Jump in if I if I miss anything or you, or you think I'm misrepresenting anything, of course. But you're right, we are all generalists, and you know I guess where I'd probably start is just a step back because this one team, uh, you know, investing as a team sport comes from a basic principle, and and that is one portfolio, very concentrated, so only ten to fifteen companies at any one time one strategy. And so it really makes sense to have one investment team. And we really do believe, you know, it's it's a foundational belief that investing is a team sport. And so everyone needs to be across the entirety of the portfolio. Some people obviously have more specialist roles within that, but it's like any team sport. You need your goal scorers, you need your playmakers and, and your blockers and tacklers in, in many respects and, and your defensive players as well. So it is important to kind of understand where it comes from. And, and this is, you know, vis-a-vis other investment firms that you may have spoken to on this podcast that might, you know, individual members might have their own pool of capital to look after, or you might have investment managers who report to a an investment committee and there's a portfolio manager that sits over the top of that. So, you know, this evergreen pool of capital that allows us to make very long-term decisions also means that we can make decisions as a team. And some people might argue that that's probably not the most effective or efficient way to make decisions, but we, it really goes to the heart of what we do and and believe and, and believe it actually promotes better outcomes for our clients. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think uh, great investment teams have a real mix of people, uh, diversity of thought as much as anything. I mean, it's good to have optimists there. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm sure you've got a few of those. Yeah. Uh, but equally, you need a pessimist yeah. uh, who's testing that investment case. So turning to you, Fraser, then, how did you come across TDM in the first place and how would you describe your investment style? Yeah, I mean, I was working in more traditional leverage buyout, private equity land before coming to TDM. And I mean, I love that experience and the people, but in my personal time, I was, you know, researching, investing in all these weird and wonderful US and European public investments. And at the time, my best friend was working at TDM. And so we'd be bouncing ideas around. And then one day he said, hey, look, we're actually hiring. Why don't you come in and and meet the team? And kind of as soon as I kind of unpicked the, wow, look at the track record of the, the business over a long period of time you know, look at the quality in, of the three leaders in the team and, and look at the quality of the broader organization, I, I kind of just jumped at it. And, and I think it was about two weeks from when I found out TDM was hiring to when I signed a contract. Now, in terms of how I fit into the team, I think Ed sort of explained it reasonably well. I'm probably from a more analytical finance background. And so that's where I, I fit in. I was also very lucky in prior roles to have seen the benefit of having investment team members with very different backgrounds and how that can be very complementary to the process. So um, I'm very mindful that while I am strong at certain things, you know, it's important to celebrate the strengths of others as well who might have a different background to someone like me. 
Yeah, interesting. And one of your other partners, Hamish, wrote a really good piece uh, recently on his sort of punch card of, of, of investments and, and how few investments you actually make at TDM. As a newcomer to the team, has it been hard to get any of your ideas across the line? It does feel hard sometimes, but I think that's because we have a great process and because the, the bar is so high in terms of what is already in the TDM portfolio. But certainly we, we have a very rigorous due diligence process. And as Ed mentioned, TDM investing is a team sport. So it's not just about convincing one person that you might have a good idea. You have to convince the whole team. Um, and so it's really important part of our process that you've looked under every single rock before you deploy a dollar. Yeah, look, I think your high conviction approach obviously really suits the hearts and minds portfolio. We're looking for, you know, a very concentrated portfolio, ideally holding those stocks for many years in a similar vein to you guys. But, you know, when, when you're looking at those businesses, Ed, uh, what characteristics are you looking for? Yeah, we could go uh, wide and deep here. And, and and thankfully, a bit like Hamish's content piece, we, we do put out quite a little bit of work around our frameworks and, and how we think about the world. So I'll give this... Uh, a good solid go, but I am also mindful that I'm not going to explain what makes a great TDM investment in five minutes and probably do it justice. So I recommend either the content on our website or the other podcasts that we've been on. But you're right, we are very aligned to the philosophy of Hearts and Minds. This highly concentrated, focused approach provides a couple of benefits, one of which is to be able to provide great portfolio support and uh, particularly with our private company investments that we'll get to and Fraser plays a, a massive role in that. But when we're looking for a great TDM investment, we use a four pillars framework and you, you'll get a sense of this. And as I said, it's only just a snapshot, but let me walk through each of these four pillars. So I might start with our probably our deepest and most important belief. And this might come as a little bit of a shock to many listeners, probably not you, because you're familiar with with how we think about the world. But that, that pillar is people and culture. And we actually believe that great people and culture is what drives amazing outcomes over the long term. And we are very long-term investors. And we've seen this time and time again of incredible operators achieving incredible outcomes over the long term. And, and also the inverse is true. And so we're growth investors a lot of the people and culture issues that pop up in these businesses are scaling that function or the systems and processes around the people and culture of the business. And if that isn't done successfully, we really believe it can inhibit growth and operational outcomes and ultimately, you know, the value creation for shareholders. So that's where a, a lot of our conversations start. And, and if it doesn't really fit in a bucket that we really want to look any further at that conversation can stop. But there are three other pillars. A big pillar as growth investors is, of course, growth opportunity. And you can imagine we're trying to compound capital, as you know, at, at very high rates of return and, and have done, thankfully, for almost two decades. And by that, I mean 25%. So it is a high hurdle rate. And the fund's returns have been driven by top-line growth of our portfolio companies. So there's no financial engineering, there's little or no debt in our businesses. And so we are fundamentally looking for fast-growing businesses. And so the opportunity for these businesses to continue to grow at high rates of return is very important for us to assess. And so you know, as part of this framework, we're not just looking at the size of the market, we're looking at, you know, the friction of the adoption of the product or the experience of the customer and also how, you know, these 
companies can in fact create new products or enter new markets with these products. And so we're looking at the growth opportunity. We've got a third pillar around structural competitive advantage. And this is based off uh, Hamilton Helmer's work around the seven powers framework and a phenomenal book for anyone that hasn't read it. And I'd recommend it deeply. And those seven powers that, you know, he wrote a whole book on it, so I don't think we need to, to go into that particularly deeply. And then, of course, the the fourth pillar, like any investor, we are not valuation agnostic. We are very focused on looking for great growth businesses at attractive prices. And, of course, we are both public market investors and private market investors, and that, and that can look slightly different in, in the public markets as you know, there are lots of opportunities, or not lots of opportunities, but you do get opportunities where uh, there's a dislocation between price and fair value. And we're structurally set up to take advantage of that as an evergreen pool of capital. We can hold cash for long periods of time and be very patient to wait for those opportunities. And in the private markets, we're more reliant on compounding fair value. And so, you know, we're, we're more comfortable buying into a company a chunky minority stake that we think is a fair price, but over a five, seven, 10 year period, that fair price is going to compound at 25% or more. So that's kind of how we think about those pillars and, and maybe we can apply it with an example a bit later. Yeah, we're going to dive into a, a couple of the stocks that you're uh, invested in uh, in the second part of this podcast. But you know, I'd be interested in your thoughts there on public versus private markets. You know, I've just come out of the, the public markets where I think, you know, my view is a lot of uh, thinking at management level had become quite short term and there are a lot of concerns around meeting the next quarterly earnings so to avoid disappointment. Whereas when you go and meet private companies, I'm invested in a couple of these as well, it is very noticeable that you're able in a private setting to think two, three, four years ahead. Now you have both in your portfolio. I was just interested to find out what you think about both of those situations, which one's better, which one's worse and how do you, how do you advise those, uh, those companies about when to go public? Bryce, do you want to take this one? Yeah, sure. Very happy to jump in. I think the first general thing I'd say is that's perhaps why we we tend to back founders in a lot of instances, whether both public or private. We find they often own a lot of stock and they bring that long-term mentality. We totally agree with your view that we'd prefer to be backing these management teams that have a long-term time horizon when they're thinking about the strategy of their business. In terms of actually when a business should IPO and should they stay private, you know, we definitely subscribe to the idea that IPOs are just one step in a company's journey and that the IPO isn't the finish line. And so any time we're a shareholder in a private business, we want to remain shareholders for as long as we possibly can, whether they are still private, whether they are public. And so we really let the maturity of the business determine when it's ready to IPO. And there's a whole kind of laundry list of, of, of pros and cons that we could talk through. But I do think there is a common misconception among these private company founders public shareholders, Wall Street, will make them focus on short-term quarterly earnings. And we just disagree with that idea because, again, we think that if you can communicate a very clear long-term growth plan with key milestones that you need to hit, then shareholders will come along for the ride. And so you can think about store rollout stories, software growth stories, you know, mining businesses with a series of new projects. So we ultimately think if you perform, your share price will reflect the intrinsic value of the business. So that's where we tend to kind of focus our time is finding leaders that are kind of targeting those big audacious plans. 
Yeah, look, there's definitely great examples in the listed market of management teams and boards, uh, you know, who, who do own a lot of stock behaving in that manner and, and being very successful over decades. So maybe uh, a very hard part of being such a high conviction portfolio is that occasionally you get it wrong. I mean, you've got an incredible track record. Uh, so you we know, make congratulations. Lo- we we that, make lots of mistakes. Yeah. There's but, no, no doubt about that. It's a question yeah, of yeah. ensuring there's a margin of safety to start yeah. with to make sure the the, the loss of capital isn't uh, either permanent or or doesn't give you an opportunity to move on. But continue, sorry. To- yeah, I guess uh, the hard part is anchoring to, you know, there's been so much work that would go into putting a stock into the fund or a, a business into the fund. How as a team, and maybe give an example to bring it to life, when you've realised, oh, actually, um, that thesis was wrong, we, we have to get out of this. We are constantly thinking about anchoring and revisiting the the companies in our portfolio, I'd say it's a mix between culture and process. So if I think about culture, we debate all of the companies in our portfolio very rigorously. And that will extend to the 22-year-old who has just joined the team, arguing with Tom Cowan about a business at one of our founders in, in the portfolio. And when you think about, obviously, Tom's track record versus the 22-year-old, that might sound a little crazy, but that is the type of culture we're trying to foster where all the voices and opinions are are thrown onto the table and and hopefully that gets us the best outcome. In terms of actual process, we do a lot of things. We we bake a lot of things structurally into our process to constantly revisit where these businesses are at. So, for example, we do quarterly reviews on all our businesses where we throw up, this is what we said the businesses were going to do, this is what it has done, both strategically and from a numbers perspective. And so there is just nowhere to hide. There is no way to change your rewrite history and change what was said six months ago or 12 months ago or 24 months ago. And so we're, we're constantly trying to keep ourselves intellectually honest through good process so that we can avoid anchoring. If I give you an example, it's always a bit scary to talk about times we've made mistakes, but I think uh, we'll, you know, we'll pick on the, the toughest kid in the schoolyard, so to speak, and we'll, we'll, we'll use a public investment where our thesis didn't quite play out. And it, it's a company we've been very public talking about, and that would be Spotify. So this is still an amazing business that we expect to do really wonderful things, but our investment thesis was predicated on building out a really large advertising business and taking a share from radio ad dollars. But if you sort of look at their progression over the last few years, obviously it's been a very tough advertising market, but they haven't really made any progress on that kind of advertising gross profit piece. And so our view was that, you know, our investment thesis wasn't really playing out the way we expected and so we should exit the position. So the mistake wasn't necessarily driven by the outcome of making or losing money. If you look at Spotify's share price this year, it's actually done pretty well, but more that the evolution of the business was different to our expectations. And so because of that, you know, we had to hold each other to account. I would just reiterate, Daniel is obviously a wonderful founder and it's, you know, we're all Spotify customers and it'll be a very successful business. It's just the story didn't play out as we expected. Yeah. And sadly, I think they've stopped investing in podcasts as well. So uh, Mm. they won't be calling me for, uh, with a big check. Uh, The big payday. Yeah. (laughs) You're a natural. For someone that hasn't done this before, you're doing just fine. Just fine. Oh, thanks, Ed. Thanks. You're, you're a bit of a, uh, an old hand at this stuff. So maybe uh, on the flip side, let's talk about a company that you've been invested in, actually that you're most proud of. Mm. Maybe this could go to you, Ed. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll have first crack here. And it might 
take you a little bit by surprise the type of company, but it's actually a what started as a, a mining services business, and that's mineral resources. And sure, it in many respects you could argue, you know, proud uh, has it changed the world, or is it doing? It? It's not an amazing technology company that we all use each and every day, like like Spotify, but. This is an incredible Australian success story that, in fact, the whole country should be proud of. We've been lucky enough to be invested for the whole life of our fund. So invested into the IPO as a $100 million market cap business. I think, I haven't checked the share price today, but it's probably a $14 billion business or there there are thereabouts and ASX top 30 company. So when we talk about backing incredible founders who can execute for long periods of time with aligned incentives and build a wonderful business, look no further than Chris Ellison. And Emma Fisher pitched Minrez at, at the 2020 uh, Sown Hearts and Minds conference or there or thereabouts. You know, we had to fight her to who was going to pitch it because we have obviously been invested for a long time, but it wraps everything that TDM believes into a bit of a bow, very long-term supporting great management teams who know how to allocate capital. And, and Chris, over the life of, of the business as a public company, I think has, has achieved an incredible return on invested capital over you know, 25% and, and hence the returns on, on the, the share price as well. So when we meet management teams, be it public or private, we say we are very long-term investors. But to walk the walk for that or in that regard is something that we are proud of because there aren't many public market investors that can say they've been invested in a company for 18 years. Great answer. And Fraser, do you have an investment? You know, it could be any time of your career that you've been most proud of. I was just going to reiterate the mineral resources pick. I think there's a few things I really love about that investment. I think one is it just shows the flexibility in our process you know, we very publicly say we're looking at consumer tech and healthcare and yet the longest running, one of the most successful investments in our portfolio is a, a mining and mining services conglomerate at this point. I think it's also an interesting example that kind of debunks the very common investing ideology that a great investment has to, or a great business has to have very predictable earnings and high returns on invested capital. I think Mins is a great example that has very high average return on invested capital and is therefore an amazing business. But can I pick what the earnings are going to be in six months or 12 months? Absolutely no chance. <laughs> and obviously, there's the commodity price piece in there which impacts that. And so I think it, it is just a constant reminder when I'm doing work on that business that predictability does not equal quality. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think, you know, finding those management teams that reinvest capital consistently in a smart way, they're hard to find. But if you've, if you've come across them, sticking with them yep. certainly pays off. Yep. For us, over, over the course of 18 years, we've only made about 65 investments. So good ideas are few and far between. And so when you find them, you, you might as well uh, watch them run. Fantastic. And maybe, Ed, uh, you could perhaps share some thoughts around Hearts and Minds. You know, how did you come across it? How did you get into it? And what is it that it means to you? Yeah. Uh, so where to, to kind of take this, I think where it came across our desk initially was through the, the conference. And it was probably, you know, looking down thinking, oh, this is just another opportunity for funds managers to talk their book. 
And that would have been the the first impression. And it wasn't until we scratched a little bit further that we really deeply understood there was a greater purpose to both the conference and then what became Hearts and Minds, the, the listed investment company. And it's become something that we're, as I mentioned at the top, really proud to be associated with. Can I talk to maybe an example of one of the medical research organisations that we support? And and it has a a thread right through the heart of TDM because for many people, they don't know, Tom Cowan suffered chronic back pain as a, uh, he was probably 22, 23, working in Investec. He'd previously had a stress fracture in his back and he had seen, I saw this firsthand as, as his younger brother, but he'd seen every doctor essentially in Australia to do with this back pain. It, and it was debilitating. We're not talking about, oh, I've got a little pain in my back. This is a guy that could not sit down for longer than 30 seconds at a time, at times couldn't drive a car, couldn't sleep at night, uh, couldn't stand up, couldn't be active. He loves golf and, you know, grew up in a, a household of three boys, very active fella and was absolutely, um, you know, the exact opposite. His life had become... You know, lying down uh, and, and in many respects not being able to enjoy life at all. And he actually came across the Pain Management Research Institute, which is based out of North Sydney and attached to Royal North Shore Hospital there. And they incredibly kind of rewired his brain and the neural system and the pathways to get rid of his back pain. He now leads a perfectly normal life. So this gives an example of an organisation we can now support through HM1, through the TDM Foundation that has had a huge impact on not just Tom but essentially TDM because uh, without Tom being the person he is today, TDM wouldn't exist either and and neither would the jobs of of 40 people in Sydney. So it's it's close to our heart for a variety of reasons. That's just one example. Well, what a perfect way to take a pause in this conversation. A lot was covered in that first half. You certainly pick up parallels between the high-performing sports teams that Ed were a part of and the high-performing culture that he's driving at TDM Growth Partners. Absolutely fascinating stuff to hear more about their structure and unique approach to investing, don't you think? Yes, they've certainly put a unique twist on the world of funds management and have built an incredibly impressive firm. Not only that, their performance mm. numbers have been uh, fantastic. I think around 25% per annum yeah, since I've... inception nearly two decades ago. Mm. So incredible for those clients lucky enough to be uh, invested with them. I was also really interested in their take on public versus private markets, particularly as they play in both fields. Yeah, and it was uh, indeed topical as two of their three stocks that they've recommended for our portfolio are indeed unlisted. Before we dive into the stock stories of Guzman and Gomez and Rocked, just a quick note that Ed did mention a couple of resources and other content pieces that TDM have put out. So just letting you know that these will be linked in the show notes in case you're curious to learn more, which I highly encourage you to do. Alrighty, let's jump into the stock, shall we? TDM's unique amongst our fund managers in that they invest in private and public stocks. And two of the stocks we currently have in the fund are actually unlisted. So maybe, uh, Fraser, I think you're going to talk about Rocked to start with. You're the Rock specialist within the TDM team, I understand. Maybe you could explain to us exactly what Rock does. Yeah, sure. So Rocked is an e-commerce personalization engine. What does that mean? Well, if you're on, say, uh, Ticket Tech, you're a Taylor Swift fan, you're buying tickets to her recent concert, 
there's a bunch of other things that you're considering purchasing as part of that experience. So maybe you need Wilson parking at the venue. Maybe you need flights and a hotel if the concert is in a different city. Maybe you need HelloFresh food or a Disney Plus subscription for the kids while they're with a babysitter. Maybe you want a new points credit card to pay for the concert. And so Rock's product powers these complementary offers for these various products throughout the e-commerce checkout flow. So maybe you'll receive a 10% off booking.com for your flights and accommodation, six weeks HelloFresh, those sorts of offers. That's the kind of the core offering that Rocked has today. But over time, they've extended that to actually build products and embed them in the e-commerce flow. So instead of getting an offer for Wilson Parking, you can actually purchase your Wilson Parking on the Ticketek website and it all feeds into the Ticketek cart. And so Rocked has this vision of bringing in all these various e-commerce providers into the one flow so that you can buy a single experience in, in one single checkout. So Rocked is this awesome two-sided network matching billions of e-commerce transactions with all these relevant and personalized third-party offers and integrating them into one experience for the consumer. And they do this for the biggest brands in the world. We're talking Uber, Lyft, AMC Theatres, Live Nation, Ticketmaster, Gap, Pizza Hut, Poshmark, Western Union, Six Flags. I could sit here for 20 minutes and talk about the partner network. And so it's a, it's a business we're really excited to be partnered with. And, and the founder and CEO, Bruce Buchanan, has built a very, very impressive business in a very short period of time. Did you use the Taylor Swift example because I'm sitting here and you saw how long I waited for those tickets? <laughs> oh, you're I think going there's a few there. people in the office. I can't, I can't reveal that in case, <laughs> in case someone you know who's ten years old in my household ends up listening to this podcast because you know it might be a surprise. Right, okay, probably unlikely, but <laughs> she loves her investing. <laughs> oh, <that's good>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so how, how do they build that business? And just maybe um, talk a little bit more about the management team. Where are they from? Where are they based? What is it that attracted you to them um, initially? And just, you know, how did they, you know, you'd think there'd be thousands of companies trying to do the same thing. How did they succeed in this space? Yeah, so Bruce Buchanan, the, the co-founder and CEO, uh, I think if I were to describe him colloquially, he is an absolute weapon. You haven't met an operator <laughs> quite uh, as impressive as Bruce. When he was in his early 30s, he was working at BCG and wrote the strategy paper for Qantas on how to build a low-cost airline. And Alan Joyce said, hey, you seem pretty smart. Do you want to build it for me? And so Bruce took Jetstar from a few bullet points on a piece of paper to a multi-billion dollar revenue, you know, massive low-cost carrier, international carrier across Asia-Pacific. He's only in his early 40s at this point, decides he's finished there and I'm going to go start my own business. And 10 years ago, he has this sort of realization that, hey, the airline checkout experience is probably the most optimized of almost any e-commerce experience in the world. It's fully disaggregated. You, you purchase the ticket, but then you sort through seats, food, entertainment. Do I want insurance? Do I want a car? All these various aspects. Again, this idea of I want to buy one experience in one go. And Bruce said, well, why can't every e-commerce business have that experience? I'm going to create that. And rather than saying, okay, I'm going to now recreate Shopify, he said, well, how do I get a leg in with the biggest e-commerce businesses in the world? Well, I'm going to help them make money because it's one thing to go to Uber and say, hey, do you want to spend a million dollars on my piece of software? It's another thing to say, hey, Uber, I'm going to make you 
$10 million a year by helping you monetize your e-commerce flow. And so the, the initial product that Rocked created was essentially a, a 50-50 revenue share, which said, hey, if an advertiser makes an offer for their product on your e-commerce flow, 50 cents in that dollar will go to, in this case, Uber, and 50 cents will go to Rocked. And so Uber all of a sudden is making free money that is sort of sitting in their backyard just by turning on the Rocked piece of software and so it sort of immediately had this product market fit where e-commerce businesses just rush to sign this onto their website because it's just such an easy value prop. You know, it's the, one of the only pieces of software that you turn on and you make more money. In terms of the team that Bruce has brought together, I think there's a number of factors that we really love about this team. I mean, Bruce himself is the third largest shareholder. He still owns a very material part of the business, which is sometimes different to what we see in, in US founders. They often get diluted down so materially, they're actually quite a small shareholder. The other thing I'd say is he's rewarded employees in the business and heavily incentivized them with equity as well. So employees own about a third of the business. The second thing I've touched on, but is this track record of high performance that starts with Bruce and extends through the organization. Again, this is now a multi-billion dollar business that's been created in, in less than 10 years. And I think it also extends to work ethic. This is a, a team and a business that works extremely, extremely hard. And so Bruce has been able to attract A-grade talent out of places like Amazon, Microsoft, Google to his relatively speaking smaller startup and is, is executing flawlessly to date. One follow-up question on, on Rocked. Fraser, you know, how's it trading currently? How has it been post-COVID? I, I, I certainly was caught holding a few e-commerce names as we traded out of COVID to my uh, disadvantage. How's Rock gone over the last couple of years? Yeah, the benefit of Rocked, as I mentioned, is that because it's helping e-commerce businesses make more money, there is a degree of counter-cyclical sort of growth to this business where when an e-commerce company all of a sudden needs to find more profits, um, you know, their shareholders are potentially pressuring them to improve margins. They turn on the rocked software and it immediately improves their bottom line. And so what we found in early 2020 when, when lockdowns began and then also coming out of COVID is a sort of a mad rush from a number of e-commerce providers to sign up and launch very, very quickly weeks instead of months. Fantastic. And are there any competitors in the space? It sounds like it's quite hard to replicate, but how do you think about that? Yeah, so Rocked is the clear market leader in this category. Bruce invented this category and it is a business that benefits from two-sided networks. So you've got the advertisers turn up on one side and you've got the e-commerce providers on the other. And, and of course, the integration with Rocked is all on an exclusive basis. And so in the short term, we think that this business is very defensive and, and very unlikely to face competitive threats. But I think as with any technology business, the, the biggest risk is not innovating. To the extent Rocked doesn't continue investing in all their AI, ML algorithms to try to match advertisers and e-commerce providers, you know, you always face a threat that someone else could unseat you. But in the short term, we're, we're very, very comfortable with the competitive position. Yeah, and it sounds like it's uh, an amazing team, which hopefully we'll find out more about in the future. Uh, so thanks for that, Fraser. That's great. So maybe turning to you, Ed, and um, we'll talk about our second stock, which you know, has been in the newspapers a little bit, somewhat unfortunately, but actually is a wonderful company, Guzman y Gomez. I think everyone knows what that one does. It's a healthy Mexican food that's uh, certainly taken Australia by storm, but maybe give us an overview of the business. Yeah, well, the, the business, as you 
you know, quite rightly point out, has a lot of brand love in Australia. And so you only need to go down to Australia Square at lunch in Sydney or or any one of their, um, you know, strip locations or drive-throughs where they might be opening and the, and the car line is 50 or 60 deep. So th- this is a business that I think most people listening would know, but as you very succinctly put, fast, clean Mexican food, fully customizable that I think as the slogan says, fast food your mum says yes to. It is you know preservative free and clean and, and, and to be able to replicate that at McDonald's speed is incredible. And so... Almost 200 stores, I think, uh, 199 stores with one opening last week. They're opening a store on average, call it one every two weeks or a little bit faster than that and growing quickly uh, and, a, and a team, as I'm sure we'll touch on, that you know has executed upon a vision and continues to do so. And this is a business that is on train tracks to some degree, has a, has a great system and process around identifying great sites, has a great process around operationalizing those sites and bringing them to market and, and has done now for, for many years. Yeah. Look, so there has been a change of management. Well, not really. Stephen is still running the business right, after okay. a health scare. So yeah. um, what has been reported is that there's a, a search for a, a new CEO, but, but Stephen Marks is, is still the founder and CEO of, of that business and, and still very active in that business. Yeah, yeah, obviously. I mean, that comes back to your core fundamental way of investing is those people driving the business forward. So it's great to know that he's um, still heavily involved in the business. And I guess what attracted you originally to the uh, Guzmini Gomez business? Yeah, so we have been invested in this business since 2018. And I, I just mentioned 199 stores. At the time, I think there are about 110 stores globally, but 104 of those stores were in Australia. Uh, and, you know, if you look around the QSR, quick service restaurant market, in Australia, there's been, or globally to, to in many respects, little to no innovation. And in any industry that has had no innovation, that screams ripe for disruption. And we saw a business that was growing exceptionally fast, but you can look around and see McDonald's, a thousand stores, KFC, 700 stores, Domino's, 700 odd stores, Hungry Jack's, 450 stores. When's the last time you had a Hungry Jack's burger? A long time ago. Well, Red Rooster, for for instance. <laughs> I have not eaten there since I was about 10 years old. 330 stores. And so little old GYG at the time with 110 stores, you didn't have to be particularly switched on to realise there was a massive opportunity to serve, as I mentioned, clean, healthy, fast food that's delicious. And I, I deeply believe in the product. And, and you only need to look at, the, as I said, the brand love and the loyalty that has been created around that brand. So you feel great eating it, but it's also providing value. And so for the young adult in Australia to drive value, they're much more health conscious than previous generations. And combining this with, as I said, McDonald's-like speed, there was something to definitely like about this business up front. And if you kind of walk through that framework that I played out earlier and our four pillars, you know, there's great people in culture. So it's founder-led Stephen Marks' effervescence in every sense, uh, but also a great board. So good people around him, 
Guy Russo, who ran McDonald's in Australia for a very long time, Steve German, who was the CFO of McDonald's Australia, Bruce Buchanan, who we've just touched on, uh, was on the board. Uh, and so having built this business from one store to, a, as I said, at the time, 110, there was this huge growth opportunity to mark off that pillar. There was a great people and culture. And when you look at competitive advantage, I've kind of touched on the brand, but Behind the scenes, there was a lot of process power in terms of how do you get this fully customizable food or order out quickly, but also around food innovation. How do you make food quickly that has no preservatives, that it's clean? And there are multiple examples of this, even right down to something that you might not think is clean and healthy, their their soft serve, for instance, that they released recently. took them two years to perfect that, full dairy, clean dairy with real chocolate rather than processed chocolate sauce. So random example, but that you can look at every ingredient and go through and it has taken years of testing and food kitchen innovation to bring what is then brought to the consumer en masse across now 200 stores essentially. So there was a lot to like initially, but what we like now is we thought, okay, they should be able to get to 500 stores. We now think that's baseline. We, we, we think we can, in Australia, get to 1,000 stores. There's no reason why this business can't be the McDonald's of the next generation. And so we are so excited about the opportunity of this business. And we're structurally set up, as I mentioned, to own businesses for very long periods of time. This is one of those opportunities that we hope becomes a, a mineral resources of, of the TDM portfolio. Wow, that's uh, very interesting, isn't it? And I mean, that ice cream example is a great example of that sort of long-term thinking that you uh, were talking about earlier. And they've just started going into the US, I think, as well. I mean, what, how big is the opportunity potentially over there if we want to get really excited? I'll, I'll break this down. So there are three stores at the moment all around the Chicago area. For those that travel to the States the, or even follow the QSR market, Chipotle has over 3,000 stores, very large business it's kind of odd to think, you know, an Australian Mexican business selling Mexican food in America, but the opportunity is there. But make no mistake for us, our returns are going to be based on the opportunity in Australia alone. And so we see the opportunity in America as cream, so to speak, on top of hopefully a, a delicious cake um, that, you know, that over long periods of time can compound capital in Australia only. And this American opportunity is, as I said, the cream to, if this is going to be in 10 years' time, the McDonald's of the next generation, it's going to have to have a larger global footprint and why not have that global footprint in the biggest QSR market? And so it's slowly, slowly over there. Uh, And for the HM1 shareholders to know that the brand and its growth in Australia is what's going to drive their returns, I think gives probably more comfort than trying to tell an American growth story and and baking in those returns into the success. And maybe coming back to our previous conversation about public versus private, this is a company that has a huge growth runway ahead of it. It probably will need capital at some point, particularly if they want to accelerate that growth. How how do you feel about a potential IPO for this stock? Yeah, uh, well, it it makes good money at the moment and, and we can maybe touch on that. But they have historically said it will look to come to market sometime in 2024. 
that is not necessarily the case as as we see it. We're, we're always, when is right for the company? At the moment, capital markets are shut, so it's kind of irrelevant. But this is going to be, hopefully, a great public company and it operates at the moment. It's an unlisted public company, so it already has the cadence and reporting of a, of a public company. And so it's, it's set up to transition to the public markets, hopefully, seamlessly. Fantastic. And it's great that you can get access to this via an investment in a listed investment company, HM1. And just to finally cover off on, uh, on GYG, I did note there was a healthy fast food company that recently listed in the US, despite markets being you know, relatively closed. It's called Carver. And the stock is up, I think, you know, well over 100%. Yeah. How does that compare <laughs> with, uh, with GYG? Yeah, um, well, I don't want to make comment whether Carver's cheap or expensive, but if you were a GYG shareholder or a hearts and minds shareholder, this might make you feel a little bit warm and fuzzy. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's a it's a casual, you know, fast chain, but Mediterranean in focus rather than Mexican, but very analogous to GYG in many respects, you know, very customizable bowls and pitas. And the numbers are surprisingly very similar. So in the last financial year, Carver did about $560 million in revenue. It's growing about 30%. So these are kind of ballpark GYG figures. The size, the scale, the margin profile, very similar to GYG. Interestingly, GYG actually has a larger AUV or you know, sales per unit, you know, materially larger. Maybe the only difference to call out is Carver is 100% corporate owned and only 70% of GYG stores are, are corporate-owned and 30% are, are franchisee-owned. Of course, you know, as a rule of thumb, the quality of those earnings attract a higher multiple, usually about twice, as I said, as a bit of a heuristic. But the market cap, so having kind of lined these two businesses up as like-for-like businesses, Carver $8.3 billion market capitalization US, GYG 1.5 AUD. So... There's a disparity somewhere, uh, and I don't know at which end it is. But as I said, if you're an HM1 shareholder, you'd be feeling, I think, a bit warm and fuzzy to, just to hear the, the side-by-side. Yeah, fantastic. That's really interesting. Thanks, Ed. All right. Well, thanks, guys, for the, those deep dives. I think just one final question for you both, and, and we've been asking this of all our guests. I think a, a common thread of the people that come on this podcast is a, a, an innate curiosity, and I think you've both displayed that here today. And so, you know, maybe tapping into something else at, away from the portfolio, what's really piquing your interest at the moment? I might, might go to you first, Fraser. It's interesting. Uh, I'm in the very privileged position to work alongside a, a former professional athlete. And so, you know, this year in particular, looking at things like live golf, PGA tour issues, various sports team being sold for record amounts of money. It's, uh, I'm very lucky to be able to bounce those sorts of ideas around with Ed and get his insights. So given he's far better place to talk about it than me, maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll throw it across. No, it's an interesting point because uh, I was lucky enough um, at the last Sone conference to host a, a panel with Cara Nortman, who's out here for the FIFA Soccer World Cup at the moment, but owns Angel City. Jerry Cardinal, who's literally the legend of investing in sport. And so this sport as an asset class, when you talk about what's piquing my interest, it that was last November, it has only accelerated in a time of, you know, economic doom and gloom, the institutional capital that 
is racing into sports leagues and clubs and and you know various means of of monetizing sport has blown me away it really has and maybe there'll be a reckoning at some point now that the cost of capital is is a little bit higher but i would probably agree with Fraser if you ask me the same question you know what's piquing my interest every time i open up the paper it's institutional money flowing into sport be it in the ipl and and seeing that grow or assets changing hands in the states with with their change of regulations around private investment you know, rather than sole owners. And, and so it's it's fascinating to see real time the institutionalization of something that we have always loved and never really thought of as an asset class now becoming big business. Yeah. Look, it's interesting. One of our biggest positions in the fund is actually Formula One, uh, which has probably led the way uh, yeah. at some of these media, media deals. And, and you know, it does seem that sport and particularly live sport is one of the few areas where you can get lots of eyeballs yep. in one place. It's one of the few appointment television uh, moments now, of course, with, with streaming and the like. The live sport is, is still appointment television. Yeah, and I think uh, when you see the viewing figures for the next Matildas game, uh, they're going to be some pretty impressive numbers. Yeah. And we've got through this whole podcast without mentioning the ashes. So uh, thank you both <laughs> for appearing today on the Hearts and Minds podcast. It was an absolute pleasure spending some time with you and look forward to meeting you in person soon, Fraser. And thanks for coming in, Ed. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for having us, Charlie. And that concludes the first episode of the Hearts and Minds podcast. Today, we are joined by TDM Investment Team members Ed Cowan and Fraser Christie. And we heard a fascinating range of topics today from private to public listed companies, the unique approach to investing, the parallels between high-performing sports teams and the culture at TDM Growth Partners. It was great to get an insight into two of the stocks we hold in the HM1 core portfolio, Rocked and GYG, both clearly very well-loved stocks by the TDM team with plenty of opportunities ahead. I'd like to say a massive thank you to the entire team at TDM Growth Partners who support Hearts and Minds in a number of ways behind the scenes and most prominently as a core fund manager, as we've heard today. And a big thank you to you for listening and joining us today on our first episode of the Hearts and Minds podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it as insightful as I did. We'll be back next week with another episode. To ensure you never miss a conversation, please subscribe wherever you're listening to this right now. And better yet, send it on to someone in your network that you think will enjoy the conversation. Thank you for your support. Until next time, stay curious. This is a Hearts and Minds podcast in partnership with Equity Mates Media. This communication has been prepared by Hearts and Minds Investment Limited, ABN 61 628 753 220. In preparing this publication, the investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of an individual have not been considered. You should not rely on the opinions, advice, recommendations, and other information contained in this publication alone. The inclusion of third-party content does not in any way imply any form of endorsement by HM1 of the products or services provided by persons or organisations who are responsible for the third-party content. This publication has been prepared to provide you with general information only. It is not intended to take the place of professional advice and you should not take action on specific issues in reliance on this information. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.